0: Welcome to the HS health tech podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes so first of all thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast they get more and more popular which I certainly did after episode 20 so we started giving proper introductions, long introductions and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that so that's why you're hearing from me now because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host, my name's James Somaru, I'm an anaesthetics and intensive care doctor by back So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to this week's episode of the HS podcast. My name is James, uh, one of the founders of HS, and with me this week I have Will Stoddart, who is an experienced health tech entrepreneur who has founded, grown, and scaled companies like We Are Labs, which is a healthcare internet business based out of Stockholm in Sweden, and HapitalSlow which focuses on helping individuals make decisions based on data from wearables. Now Will and I have known each other for around a year and every now and again we put the health tech world to rights, which is hopefully what we'll do again today. So Will, welcome. How are you doing? Thank you, James. It's great to be here. I'm very well, thanks. Excellent, excellent. So Will, uh, you've got an incredible background, really interesting story. So yeah, why don't you tell us all about it? Oof, where's
1: the start? <laughs> so, <laughs> At the uh,
0: somewhere near the beginning.
1: <laughs> so the beginning is, um, I, my, my background originally was actually uh, in finance. So, um, so I actually started my career after university. So I went to Durham University and then I started working in London uh, for a brokerage under someone who I would think of mm-hmm. as my, my first real mentor, which was a guy called John Spears, who was uh, a Cambridge engineer and uh, one of the first people to kind of build these um, consumer-friendly uh, models uh, around uh, investing uh, for the general public, uh, which are now used by, by most banks um, around the world today. I even see them in, here in Stockholm. And I worked in London for a number of years. And then uh, one day with a couple of uh, friends of mine from university, uh, I visited Stockholm uh, I became very good friends with a friend of theirs uh, and uh, rather rapidly she became pregnant and uh, and I moved over to Stockholm at the age of 24, 25 uh, with real, no real idea of, of what I was going to do, but uh, but but a new adventure starting. And uh, I worked in Stockholm. Uh, I joined a, a finance company that was uh, also building software for banks and hedge funds. So uh, I worked with them for, for seven years. And uh, learned a lot about software development, working with software development teams, uh, the long sales process in B2B sales, uh, and also had an exciting opportunity to work in a number of different countries, including Singapore and then, uh, and then South Africa. Around that time, a rather drastic thing happened within our family life that my, uh, my, my wife at that time was diagnosed with a uh, with, uh, glioblastoma. Uh, so she, she sadly passed away, uh, around 2010, uh, and, uh, you know, those kind of big events in your life. So I was there with two, two young kids on my own in a new country or a relatively new country. And, uh, and those kind of things helped focus the mind a little bit. So at that stage, I wasn't particularly happy in the company that I was working and I had uh, a very, or still have a very close relationship with, with my twin brother, who was, uh, uh, a natural science graduate uh, and statistician from Cambridge and we had an idea of uh, starting a company together uh, which is how Haplaflow came about and And the idea there was we were going to take uh, or we were taking data from uh, Jawbones if anyone remembers Jawbones uh, and we were going to try and help people answer natural language questions like uh, if I stop drinking caffeine do I sleep better and Very early on in that journey, uh, I was based in Stockholm. He was based in the UK. Uh, We decided that we needed we needed blood testing uh, to really uh, improve the product that we were building, and uh, that's when I came across a doctor, Rickard Lagerqvist, the Swedish uh, GP, a specialist specialist GP. Uh, You can become a specialist in general practice in Sweden, and uh, we became friends, and we um, we built a company called Labs and we kind of stopped working on on the uh the jawbone haploflow project um, which was which was perfectly fine and if anyone has any interest in looking at the background to that my uh, my brother actually had a a website called monkeyglandin.com so if any of you are interested in health economics and statistics that's uh, that's a good one to to jump onto. And then, yep, So we are labs, in the, in the early days, it was uh, it was two of us. Uh, we we brought in a couple of other people. One who was a tech guy uh, who built our digital journaling system. Uh, maybe I should say at this point what we actually did. Maybe that's helpful for, you, <laughs> for the listeners. Uh, so basically, we did um, we did consumer blood testing. So so we used to say health analysis via blood testing. Uh, and in very practical terms, that means that. Uh, As a a member of the general public, you could come onto a website, order a package of blood tests and then drop into your local GP to have your blood drawn. And then you would uh, get your results normally within four to seven hours uh, with uh, with clinical comments uh, from the doctor. Um, And it it was um, it was a completely new way of, of offering blood testing to the general public. We focused on metabolic conditions. Uh, risk of cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, these sorts of things, uh, and it was a really interesting model uh, that's still working very well now. Um, because it was it was interesting because it basically all labs, including NHS labs, have a large amount of excess capacity. So if you look at the Carter report in the UK, uh, labs uh, only utilise around twenty percent of their the capacity. Um, and that means that there's a large amount which they could they could monetize, which obviously would be a good thing for a uh, healthcare system. And we found a way of, of doing that, and also offering uh, a useful uh, product for uh, for consumers who were already coming into general practice asking for their own blood tests, and, and normally you had to refuse. And uh, and we we started that. It took off very rapidly, particularly particularly within certain consumer groups, and it attracted the attention of uh, venture capital. So, uh, so I took the company from a very small group, um, and uh, we built it up. Uh, we took in over ten million euros of, of financing over time, uh, and we built it up to over fifty people, fifty employees, uh, and now it's still going. Uh, and I left it in October and founded a new company with uh, uh, a, a very good group of people that I've I've worked with before, and. The the new company, as uh, uh, you and I discussed, is a consumer healthcare company again, and we offer diagnostics uh, content and providers to help monitor, educate, and treat age related decline in functionality. And what that really means is, if you if you have the chance to go onto the BBC uh, website, have a look at uh, how to stay young with the uh, uh, Chris Van Tulleken. Uh, I think there's, that's a, a pretty good explanation of what what is possible and the type of product we're going to build. So that was a very long intro. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Okay, so I want to take you right back, I guess, to your initial experience with um, John Spears that you mentioned as your first mentor in finance, and then you went into sales, yeah. and then you learned something about healthcare and medicine. I mean, it sounds like you, you've sort of acquired the almost the perfect skill set to be a health tech CEO, Um, in that you've done some software engineering, as I say, some medicine, some finance, some sales. It sounds like you were on this path. Did you always think you were going to be a founder?
1: Did you collect those skills sort of intentionally? Um, I'd like to think it was intentional, but uh, (laughs) I think you only, you know, you look back at these things and I think that you're right. I mean, there there were a number of skill sets that that luckily came together, but, uh, but to think that I planned this path uh, would be would be dishonest it was uh it was a lot of serendipity involved as well
0: tell me about founding Haploflow you founded that with a family member that's i mean yep. we don't come across that very often i mean what sort of challenges and and
1: i guess good things came as a result of that so, so that, I mean, because we relatively rapidly switched into Weir uh, we didn't hit any of the kind of operational challenges that normally are the, the strain within within the founding group, um, or you know the life changing events that um, person to want to leave uh, versus the other. Um, but but for me, I mean, I was very lucky. I, it's a twin. I have a twin brother, and we're very close. And um, it, I, I don't know what it's not like. Sorry, I don't know what it's like to not have a twin, so I can't really compare it. But I think that uh, there's a level of trust that we had and we were very used to each other. Um, so, um, so when it became time for me to say, I, I think that uh, HaploFlow is going to be put on the back burner and we're going to focus on Weir Labs," uh, My brother came on to Weir Labs as an advisor, um, which has worked out well for both of us. Uh, and he, at, at no point had he left his job. Mm -hmm. Uh, so so it wasn't um it wasn't a dramatic life change for him sure uh but but yeah i mean i think when you're thinking about so i can't talk about my experience but what i can talk about is i have a very good relationship with um with the founders of natural cycles uh for those of you that don't know that's a uh now a digital therapeutic which means it can be used uh it's actually gone through trials uh and has shown to be as effective contraceptive as the pill um, and that founding team was a husband and wife team mm. and my understanding. So they're both physicists. She worked at CERN, um, extremely talented group, uh, a couple, uh, but I do know that, um, they've got brilliant funding now, but in the early days it was, it was hard to get funding because some investors have, you know, rules that they won't invest in a family business or, or a married couple. Yeah. It's quite often quite a hard line, isn't it? It really is, but I mean, it makes sense because if you have to have a heart, if you're a, if you're an experienced angel or an experienced VC, typically you have a criteria that you just unless something is amazingly exceptional, you just don't uh, you just don't cross because you see you know maybe eight thousand pitches a year, you can't uh, you can't dive deep into all of them. So it's easier to just have a yes or no based on a few simple rules. Exactly. Um, wh- when did you start Haplaflow? How long ago was that? Whew, that was. I, I could. I need to check my LinkedIn, but I think it was 2011 or 2012. <laughs> okay, no, 2013. It was 2013. That's very so. really interesting because I mean, what you've described with Haploflow
0: in terms of you know it focuses on helping individuals make decisions based on data from wearables. That's a very 2018, 2019 thing to say. It seems like you were thinking about that quite early on, like quite a few years ago.
1: Yeah. So, so um, I think that's correct. I think that we were quite. Because of our skill sets, we were quite early in seeing that this was possible and this market has to exist. So I think there's a, for anyone that wants to dive deeper into this, there's a, a beautiful um, article on Andreessen and Horowitz, which is a famous VC company uh, called The Hidden 40%. Mm. Uh, and it's referring to a 2007 uh, New England Journal of Medicine article on uh, the future. I think it was the future of medicine. But uh, but they were talking about um, behavior having the biggest impact on your long-term health, uh, 40% impact on your your risk of uh, premature death. Um, and I think that we saw that there were devices now that were going to give much more visibility into the impact of the decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, I think jawbone's an early one, but the things I'm most excited about are things like uh, continuous glucose monitors. I mean, genuinely, if anyone ever gets a chance to, to wear one of those for, for a couple of months... It's pretty eye opening. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we're we're going to see uh, access to this information and it's going to have an impact on the decisions that people make on a day to day basis.
0: I completely agree. Um, So let's move on to We Are Labs. How did you go? How did you get the idea, first of all? And then how did you go from an idea into making that into reality? Because it seems quite a it's quite an off the wall sector to be going in you know revolutionizing the way that labs conduct
1: their operations so um i mean the story with Weir labs was uh, i should i should be completely clear here uh, the doctor had set up a web shop to do this when i joined him so i was one of the first customers and i quickly realized the way he'd done it was the only scalable way of doing it so that's how we, how we got together cool. um but um but basically i'd been using blood testing for many years Uh, My father was Dean of Graduate Medicine at Manchester and a type 2 diabetic and very overweight. Uh, And I knew that heart disease was big in our family. So i had been monitoring my blood for a long time and I knew that the user experience was terrible. Basically, if you wanted to buy blood tests privately uh, because your GP wouldn't give them to you, you had to pay a large amount of money. Uh, It it was uh, a cumbersome process and then the results would normally come to you as a PDF uh, with a phone call, just saying things are okay or not okay, and uh, uh, and uh, like I said, around devices, I felt that people were going to have access to this kind of uh, um, uh, this this kind of service further into the future. So so um, when I used the service, uh, it was a spectacular. Dropping into a, a GP location for phlebotomy and then getting your results in such a short period of time, with at that time a, a pretty crappy doctor's comment, if I'm being mm-hmm. honest um was 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 pretty new so i i became friends with ricard uh it was evident that he was one of these individuals that um was extremely good at uh, pushing forward the first three to six months of a business and he recognized that but he couldn't uh i wouldn't say he could grow a business and i think he would say that too um so i realized the genesis of what they had uh, we were very lucky that we got a, a good tech person whose thesis project was to build uh, an integration to a um, to a lab system uh, and a, show a user journal. And then we were also very lucky that S- Sweden um, is probably one of the only places in the world, although the UK is getting there now, actually, where you have a, a unified system for ordering blood tests. And we could just tap into that. It, I think if that hadn't existed, the service itself wouldn't would would have been much harder to build. Mm. Um
0: but One thing I do want to touch on where is obviously what's coming through in a few of your answers is the fact that not only have you, I guess, ended up in health, but in, in a lot of ways, you sort of chosen health. And I think your motivations are really coming out in the way that you're talking about addressing these problems and a real kind of passion for it. I guess twinned with, you know, the, the tragedy that obviously happened in your life. Do you feel this strong pull towards
1: solving health care problems? Um, so, so I do. I mean, I think. I think I was lucky that because of my education and because of the people around me, I had a pretty good idea of what was going to be possible over the next few years and how that could impact people's health. And I thought that was a worthy thing to go after. I thought, you know, from perspective, I think it's an enormous market, but also from a job satisfaction perspective, the the opportunities are enormous. I, I would love to say that the tragedy that affected me, um, had a, had a big impact on that um but but i actually often, often think about them I, I don't think that did have the, i think it gave me the opportunity to do, to do this um because it helped focus my mind um, i mean the real story is that actually i was after 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 lena died uh, later on i was i was dating a doctor and she was using a uh low carbohydrate diet to uh, reduce the uh, the effects of p c o s mm. And, um, and also cause she felt that, uh, that she could perform better on night shifts and I gave it a go and it had at that time it had quite a profound impact on me. Um, and as my dad was type two diabetic, I read more and more about it. And then, uh, you know, kind of my interest in the, in how you can affect your own physiology in many different ways, uh, just grew from there. So that's one of the reasons that I got into it. Yeah. Um, okay. So
0: you're on your third company now. Um, have you... Yeah. I guess, learned any ways of streamlining that process? Have you got kind of like a blueprint as to how you think about it in your head, you know, going from I'd like to do this or, or this is an idea worth working on. So how do I set the company up? How do I get that seed financing? How do I set up a team? Do you do you have a blueprint for that sort of stuff now? Is, is there a hack to it? Uh,
1: uh, absolutely. Um, this is where I think that. So, I mean, one of the things that you and I discussed is around mentors and advisors. I think that's a very big part of it, but I also think the discipline of uh, making notes as you go through a journey is is vital. So I now have a 60-page uh, book of checklists that I use for how I think about different decisions from setting up a company, building a pitch deck, uh, raising financing, managing teams, all of this sort of thing uh, I, I put into a, into a blueprint for me. I mean, it doesn't solve all problems, but it makes everything so much quicker. And as an example of that, uh you know now for my for my uh, new company we have a team of 5 people already uh within a month we've um, we're signing suppliers up uh we're having an mvp built uh we've um, we're just closing a financing deal and this has been in what 5 weeks 6 weeks you know which is an order of magnitude quicker i would think than that most people mm. now um only because i know exactly the things to do and in what order and how uh, and also, you may, it's lucky because you, you build up a reputation so you know who to go to for simple things like uh, legal uh, legal questions, how do you become EIS approved, et cetera, et cetera. How do you get a shareholder agreement? How do you get an articles of association? How much does it cost? Who's good at doing this? All of these things that take time and you'd have to learn on your own. I don't I don't have sure. to do anything. I mean, that sounds like an incredible book. 60
0: pages of pure checklists on a company I mean yeah, that can be commercialized into long. your
1: fourth company right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean so, some of those things are a little bit uh I think hacks that speed things up so uh so I, I keep them to myself sure. a little bit at the moment but uh and they're, they're a little bit but, but but definitely I think there's some things that uh, that I can pass on to, to others there as well
0: for our early stage founders then what are the grenades that can really
1: impact the relationship with um, the board and investors? So, uh, so I think there are a number of things to think about here. So from the very early days, uh, it's really important that you understand that uh, you are a product that an investor is buying into. And the same way they would do due diligence on you, you need to do due diligence on them. You know, Find out what kind of companies have they invested in before What is their skill set? What happened when things got difficult? Because inevitably things will get difficult. And then when you're thinking about the board composition uh, for an early stage startup, one of the worst things that can happen for you is to get a reporting board. And a reporting board means rather than sitting down together to discuss uh, the problems that you're having and potential strategies going forward, you end up reporting on numbers and then explaining yourself. And, um, you know, I've had experience of both a, a strategy board, but also a reporting board. And I think a reporting board makes a lot of sense kind of post B round when you're moving towards um, IPO or a, a buyout. So typically these people are very good financial engineers. And, and that, that is a skill set that later on in the life of a company, you really do need. But I would say in the early days, much less so. And it's also important to ensure that, You align with investors continually. So I would highly recommend that people put together a monthly report. It shouldn't be too time consuming, but the payoff is enormous. Because if you do that, when you do have problems, um, people are aware of it. They're much more likely to put money in. And also, you know, if you are, if you're giving them an ask, like you're saying, I need you to do this or that, they feel involved. So let's talk about mentorship then. So, I mean, you
0: probably now do more than your fair share and you know having been on the receiving end of it in some of our chats I'd say it's definitely a strength of yours what do you say to the founders listening especially the early stage founders on the value of mentorship should all founders have
1: mentors or be looking for mentors in your opinion so so maybe I, I've been a little bit uh, I've I, I kind of labeled things incorrectly so I've never really had an official mentor not someone who I would always go to for every problem um and I know that I think there's some definitions of mentor where you know this is an individual that actually in essence gives up part of their life to to aid you and it's a a proper long term relationship I, I I don't think I've ever had that, but i've had a lot of people that have unofficially mentored me um and I think that the the value um, it, the value can be huge um but there are also some pitfalls. Which I think uh, we've mentioned, we've talked about before. Uh, so for me, I was very lucky that, uh, uh, particularly in the early days of, of Wealabs, I had um, unofficial mentorship from, from Daniel Eck, who was the CEO of Spotify, uh, from Jonas Norlander, who was the uh, uh, the CEO of Avito, which was um, one of Russia's biggest websites. Uh, but they were both Swedes, and they're very, you know, very famous Swedish entrepreneurs. And they both have extensive operational experience. What does an unofficial mentor do and what did each of those mentors do for you? So, so an unofficial mentor, in my mind, is someone that you've never had any official agreement. Um, they don't receive any any uh, equity in your company or anything like that. They're just an, a person on the end of the phone when you have a problem that you know you can call up and help you with a specific mm-hmm. area. Um, and, you know, John John Spears, my first, the, the Cambridge engineer, uh, my first company, I mean, he was never my official mentor, but I think I learned a lot about uh, what mm. looks good when it comes to management. And I, I mean, just to jump around a little bit, uh, you know, th- this is something I keep focusing on. I uh, I had a very long conversation with, uh, w- with the, the ex-VP of Engineering at Klarna, uh, who, who we were trying to recruit at one stage, but we, we couldn't really afford him. Um and and he made a statement around knowing what good looks like, and I think so. An unofficial mentor knows what good looks like in a specific area, and they're an individual that you can call up at any time—text, call, email—and they'll come back to you. I mean, Daniel Eck, you know, is running a multi-billion euro uh, company, and he'll text me or email me normally within ten minutes uh, when we when wow. we were, we were interact. But I'd say an official one is probably. This is someone where you probably have some standard agreement that, that they're going to help you with your career. You, potentially, they even have some form of equity in, in whatever you're doing. I don't think it's that common uh, to have an official mentor. Um, maybe maybe it's more common in the UK, but I haven't mm. really seen it uh, uh, so much. I think it's quite common in the US, but I haven't seen it so much here. Sure. Today. So
0: I, I guess what you're describing is more of a kind of an NED arrangement. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So from a mentee's perspective, then, um, is there a way to ask for advice? Is there such thing as too much advice if you've got a problem in a certain area in your eyes?
1: So, so actually this is, this is nailing one of the biggest problems and mistakes that I actually made early on. Uh, so I used to, so I think I got a reputation for not taking advice. And in fact, the opposite was the problem. I used to go to a lot of people for advice and I try and triangulate what they would say, and then make my own decision, which which I thought was the right way of doing it. And maybe on the surface sounds good, but you've got to think about the sin- signalling that that gives. So let's say you ask, you know, six people for advice, you get six different opinions. If you take one person's opinion, five people think that you're just ignoring, interesting, them and that they've wasted their time. So so this is, and I think this is an error that a lot of people make. So. The, the type of words the type of approach that you make when you're asking someone for advice have a huge impact on how they're going to take it if you don't take their advice and you've also got to remember that for, if you're asking very experienced people for advice that they're, they're human beings they're going to have an ego that's related to that so if they think that uh, you're not taking their advice it can it can really it can cause problems mm. so so i would think you know you, you'll hear the common adage, you know, you should uh, make sure you take advice, speak to lots of people, all this kind of thing. But uh, when you do ask for advice, um, I really like there's a guy called Ray Dalio, who's a hedge fund manager at Bridgewater in the US. It's a, it's a very famous hedge fund. And he talks about believability waiting when you're when you're getting advice or you're talking to someone. And I think it's really important that you think about that when you're asking for advice as well, because what I found was extremely experienced advisors. Um, would be very good at a specific focus areas for which they have experience, but sometimes with questions for which they don't necessarily have uh, experience or for which your current problem is a unique example because every startup is unique the um the advice that they can give cannot always be great uh, and someone who maybe doesn 't have so much experience but 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 understands that area of focus or, or is a bit more reflective um maybe you should give them a little bit more believability i was
0: going to ask you then how you went about clarify or not clarifying i guess qualifying your mentors but actually when you're talking about the ceo of spotify i think you can safely assume that that person knows a thing or two about being a ceo and running a business um but do you have any advice
1: on qualifying mentors in what you've said well so, so that's an interesting example so let's let's take let's take that example i think that um this daniel is a, is an extremely is an extraordinary individual and he's uh, very very bright and he has uh, experience in um building a company that's growing quickly that's vc backed um and has uh, a lot of resources um that may not necessarily be relevant for a smaller company that's not growing fast that wants to turn profitable etc cetera, etc cetera. so So um, I think it's really you think a lot about the question that you're asking and then the specific individual's experience around that question. I I don't know if that helps answer it. Maybe I just repeated myself, but... uh, um no, that's true. no, that's true. I mean, as you say, it's
0: it's trying to identify those individuals for their given strengths. It's it's also, and what I've taken from that is actually, you know, nobody's perfect. Nobody has all the answers. And actually, when you think about what you describe as unofficial mentors, you can actually have this army of people behind you that that you're going to for individual things whether that be hiring and firing whether that be the as you say the early stage of a company or or the late stage running of a company or perhaps technical expertise or these different things and it seems perfectly reasonable in fact almost essential really to just have those people behind you in in all those different elements in order to always have somebody to go to when there's a problem in whatever part of the
1: business. Yeah I mean that's definitely the case I mean ultimately I think the hard thing is that no matter how good your mentors are, often you are the one making the decision and it's a lonely decision, particularly if it's a hard question. Um, and I and I also, I love this, uh, Ben Horowitz, The Hard Thing About Hard Things is a bit of a famous book, um, but he makes a really important point that if you're a good CEO, you probably make the right decision around 20% of the time. And imagine the psychology wow. around that, that most of the time you're wrong, even if you've taken advice um so so you know the a mentor is not going to is, is probably not going to give you the right answer all the time um but but maybe what they're actually better at and we haven't touched on is is the point that when things do go wrong you know helping you ground the reality on the size of the problem uh and what the next steps will be yeah so in terms of becoming important.
0: the mentor then and i guess crossing over to that side what's your process for doing that and how do you see your role do you have any I guess frameworks or
1: ways of doing it specifically so um so so I guess yes and no so so being a mentor for me kind of happened out of the blue um so uh, so for, for you and I for example it was uh it was a chance meeting with uh with Tony Young at a Swedish ambassadors event where I was presenting with Tony Young and with um, uh, Ali from Babylon and uh, johan uh, from Johannes from Cree, which was a telemedicine yeah. platform uh, and and just a chance meeting with him kind of and then meeting you obviously when you were meeting with Tony, um, kind of started off the process and then from from there it's it's kind of unofficially grown as I left Wea Labs and I had a bit more time before starting this new new company um a number of entrepreneurs uh, and investors reached out and asked me to help um some some people who were just starting out uh, and after those initial meetings i realized that a lot of the questions that come up particularly in the early days tend to be the the same the same questions you know, around product around budgeting in particular um uh, around business models uh, which which is often a big problem for a lot of people, and uh, I realised that you know the sixty page booklet that I mentioned before uh, helped me build a framework for for making sure that uh, the hour that we spent together I could I could give them um, contacts by the end of the discussion who can help them with the next step and a frame for thinking about the problem that they have. Um, so i guess it was nothing deeper than that but it, but it was it was it, it, mm-hmm. it happened by serendipity but but when i have the meetings now it's it's a lot more structured as to so i can so i can try and help in in a short period when you uh, when when you meet these people um typically you realize you know more than you think you know and that's a nice feeling so there's a selfish feeling uh and there's also a another uh, another very positive thing which is that um you it's a small community of people that tend to interact over a long period of time. So, so it's, it's paying, paying forward a little bit. And it's I mean, it's just satisfying to see the feeling of sitting in front of someone that's starting off with something that's an exciting project that you know, is going to have a big impact on their life. Uh, And they don't necessarily even know that yet it's kind of really satisfying and energizing to sit in those conversations. Maybe that's another selfish reason, but, but, but I think that those are the two big ones.
0: I completely agree. It's almost the exact reason that we started HS, you know, it's, it's, it's to see those individuals with those superb talents that just need rounding off or just need certain help in certain areas. And, you know, us building the ecosystem around them, then helping them realize those, those ideas and turn them into reality and create impact. It's, yeah, it's an incredible thing to see. Um, especially when you're close up. So, well, I, I guess one, one yeah. more thing that I wanted to cover in this podcast, um, you, you touched on it briefly earlier, was um, I guess the, the similarities, differences between the UK and and the Nordics in terms of the healthcare system I tend to hear quite a lot you know that the the health tech scene is quite good in the Nordics Um, Norway and Sweden and Finland I hear quite a lot the healthcare system I hear is great in the Nordics although I've not really spent too much time there I guess could you give us an overview as to what you see the similarities and differences are and perhaps
1: why health tech is so good in the Nordics? So, so I think well, health tech and tech generally in the Nordics, uh, and I think particularly Sweden and Stockholm here is very good for one very clear reason, which is that a number of very successful worldwide companies uh, have been built here. So think uh, and headquartered here. So so think Spotify, uh, think Skype, think Klarna, uh, Izettle. Uh, you could name many uh, unicorns. Uh, in essence and and what happens is that individuals from these companies uh learn very quickly some of the best practices in the world you attract some of the best developers in the world here uh and then you um uh, these people often uh, have some form of an exit which means that they have quite a reasonably large amount of money to invest as angels so so there's this kind of vicious circle that uh, that really pumps uh Stockholm in particular Um, uh, to be a tech center. And that's why I think, you know, there's a a huge advantage to being here, particularly at this moment. You know, you think about things like iZettle. When you think about these companies listing, what you see is there's probably a two or three year window of opportunity where there's uh, some world-class people looking for new adventures. Uh, And I think that the health scene is, uh, health tech scene is really taking advantage of that in Stockholm. Um, I think that, if you're being, you know, from a business uh, a business perspective, a bit a bit uh, blank and, and hard, I would say that the um, the reimbursement system, which I think will change in, in Sweden, has been very beneficial to companies who are uh, offering telemedicine services, for example. Okay. So it's been a way for them to expand rapidly and to uh, bring in a lot of uh, expansion cash as well. Um, there are also quite a lot of doctors now. I think there's quite a, I think one thing, that, again, another Andreessen Horowitz article was on physician innovators uh, and how that's the the pain point for almost all health tech companies. Uh, and I think there are um, quite a lot of phys- physician innovators in the Stockholm area. Uh, and I keep referring to Stockholm because, to be honest, although it's Scandinavia, I, I don't really know. Uh, the Finnish, or well, the the Danish, uh, or the uh, or, or the Norwegian markets sure. that way. It,
0: it sounds like it's a it's a full ecosystem play, right? Because as you say, there's physician innovators, but also the best developers, and that's all powered by yeah. big exits that are pushing money back into the system. So it sounds like a big ecosystem play. Yeah, that everything as you say is just sort of going back really and benefiting each other, which I guess. When you've got a health tech ecosystem that's so
1: prolific, assumedly that has really good knock-on effects to the healthcare system itself. Yeah. I mean, it's huge. I mean, Stockholm and Sweden is going to benefit from, from these big companies, I think, for, for the next 10 to 15 years. It's, it's going to be a very interesting, very interesting time. Lots of interesting companies coming out of the market. I mean, and I guess the other famous comment around um Scandinavia is because the markets are quite small you have to think international from the from mm. the early days so so you know within the UK you can be very UK focused because the market is so large um, but but here in Sweden, you know, we had to think about expansion and, and the scalability of the product from day one because we knew that the market size in Sweden was going to be. Limited. That's a good
0: point around the internationalisation um, because when we started HS, when we did our kind of initial ecosystem mapping and chatting to a lot of um, the venture capital scene around, you know, where they saw health tech and and we're trying to figure out, you know, the issues around why. Um, you know seed stage companies weren't getting a lot of investment in health tech and trying to figure out where the gap was and they said a very similar thing to what you've alluded to which is in the UK people do assume that they can build out a company purely for the UK now actually when you're trying to raise venture capital money and you're trying to argue that it's going to be a billion dollar company well actually that's probably isn't correct however it's a founder bias that tends to be quite prolific in the UK, i.e. that people are thinking too small and not potentially having that level of ambition with their ideas. So, yeah, it's really interesting that, obviously, in Stockholm, as you've described, because you have to think internationally, therefore the ideas are bigger, and therefore, you know, they are more likely to connect, to collect that venture capital money, therefore power the ecosystem further. Yeah. Um, and I guess the other thing, then, I suppose, is if you've got a healthcare system that's
1: so amenable to, to the health tech scene, is it easy to get pilots over there we never we never really got a, a pilot and i don't know actually that many companies that have uh, had, had had pilots uh working actually i'm sure there are but but i don't know that many i think that um there was there was a willingness th- this might sound a little cryptic but there was a willingness uh when i when we stayed at health hub which was a um, an incubator for health tech companies. You know there was a willingness there to to push the envelope a little bit on 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 uh, on, on what you could build and uh, and working with um, with things like Karolinska with places like Karolinska uh, that uh, that I find is is harder in the UK. There's much more caution in the UK than than there is in sweden not to say that swedes are, are, are not cautious but um from my point of view i've i've got my
0: own i guess ideas as to why that is but from your side as an entrepreneur why do you think that is
1: the danger could be that it's uh, that it's actually just an act of omission. people aren't thinking mm. about it um uh, and that probably isn't the sexiest answer, but, but I think actually that's a, a large part of it. Uh, I, I mean, you, so you know this, when you're thinking about a global company, for example, just, just to give a clear example, you know, everyone talks about uh, data protection. Um, you rarely ever hear a, a actual consumers talk about data protection, but you hear, hear governments. And when you're thinking about building a global product, uh, there are two markets in Europe for which, you know, your messaging is always around this, and that's the UK and Germany. Whereas your messaging in uh, in Scandinavia doesn't need to be around that, at least not at the moment. Uh, that's not to say that obviously, I mean, you obviously still have to follow the regulations, but um, it, it gives an example of the type of question and the caution that that these markets um, often uh, often focus on. And is your new company going to be based in Stockholm or is it going to be based in the UK? Uh, so it's going to be um, a UK company, and our first market will be uh, will actually be we're going to test the MVP in Sweden because, well, from a very practical perspective, uh, when you're building uh, an application, in this case, it's an application. Whether where our last product was web based, but when you're building an application um Sweden's a good place to test it because iOS uh, is uh, is embedded within the market, so it's a very high penetration for, for, for iOS. In fact, a lot of companies test uh, their new products in Sweden because it's quite homogenous and because there is the deep penetration of iOS. Um, but the for healthcare products, um, if you need to be registered by, I think it's the CQC in the UK and it's IVO in Sweden, um, then uh because of eu regulations you can which may be affected by brexit i have no idea but at the moment eu regulations mean that you can operate as a a telemedicine or healthcare provider cross border so you could theoretically test products in in this market without necessarily having a um, a swedish company or uh, or any presence in the market itself oh nice cool so we'll what we
0: normally do at the end of these podcasts is we hand back over to you to kind of summarize about yourself about your background or about whatever you like really um and
1: then to give us any asks that you have of our audience okay um so i think we i mean we covered my background a bit at the beginning but uh Again, my name is Will Stoddart. I'm a medical and tech CEO. I have experience from founding, growing growing and scaling Labs, which is a a rapidly expanding healthcare internet business. We did health analysis by blood testing, uh, and we're based out of Stockholm in Sweden. Uh, Prior to that, prior to Labs, I was a founder, along with my twin brother, uh, of a company called Haplerflow, which focused on helping individuals make decisions based on data from wearables. Um, my uh, technical background is in software engineering. I have some uh, some background in medicine and finance, uh, and I'm happy to share if anyone wants to reach out any stories on founding, raising, financing, uh, and managing very different cultures. Uh, you know, think medicine versus product versus marketing. I think there are many interesting problems in, in the health tech arena related to that. Uh, I've just founded a new my third company, a new consumer healthcare company that's focusing on monitoring, educating, and treating age-related decline in functionality. Um, and in my spare time, I am actually helping uh, clinical entrepreneurs in the UK and health startups in Sweden. And uh, I guess my, my only ask at this stage is if you're a physician or you uh, uh, with an interest in cognition um, or decline, physical decline as we age and how to reverse those things, measure and reverse those things, Uh, and you have an interest uh, in discussing this sort of thing, then please do reach out on LinkedIn. Um, My name is Will Stoddart on LinkedIn, and you'll see it CEO of Labs. Uh, Or feel free to email me at uh, wrhtoddart, S-T-O-D-D-A-R-T, at gmail.com.